Okay, everybody, great to see you. Let's get started. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer and we will begin, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, thank you, Lord, for this glorious day. Thank you for the beauty of your grace. Thank you that we have been befriended by the, the King of Kings and the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us with um, the, the blessing of drawing us near, Lord. We were estranged, we were far away, Lord, and yet you brought us near. And uh, you drew us to yourself in faith, Lord. We uh, were justified by your grace, Lord. And so help us to see, Lord, today uh, encouraging things from your word. Help us to understand our faith better. Uh, that's really what we want to do here today, Lord. We really want to understand the nature <clears throat> of our faith. We want to have a better grasp on the whole counsel of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would lead us and guide us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, uh, today we are going to be looking at a different covenant. And um, this is a covenant that historically has been... This is why they, I knew this one. I took a gamble on that one. And I knew that it wasn't as good as mine. But uh, here we are. So... We're looking at the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, this is historically what theologians have referred, referred to it as, the covenant of redemption. I'll get there in a second. But first, I just want to point out the importance of the importance of Trinitarian theology. Uh, the Trinity is so absolutely important for for us to understand uh, Christianity, for us to cr understand our Christian life. I mean, Trinitarian theology is, um, you know, is so practically important as well. You remember we did our series on prayer, and I made a big stink about praying the right way. You know, I mean, God wants us to pray, you know, childlike prayers. But there's a reason why Jesus said, when you pray, pray to the Father in my name. So in other words, there's a proper order of prayer. Why? And I say it's because it's all bound up in the gospel. Um, the reason that we're praying to the Father through the Son, and then the, the Bible would say pray in the Spirit or by the Spirit, which we could just maybe translate that to mean by the power of the Spirit, by the resources of the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit. See, it's a whole Trinitarian thing. Um, and how many times have you either been guilty of this or have you heard people be guilty of this? They pray to Jesus in the name of Jesus, right? Um, dear Jesus, sweet Jesus, right? <laughs> They're just Jesus, 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 right? And it's good, right? Because people are at least praying. So thank Thank Jesus that they're praying. But, uh, but, but you know, what, what's wrong with that is that we do not have a Jesus-only religion. Uh, we believe in the Trinity. So we are Trinitarians. And this distinguishes us as monotheists, right? Monotheism is the idea that there is only one God, right? Uh, monos. That's the Greek word that means one, right, or so only. So monotheism, we believe there is one God, but what, what distinguishes us from, let's say, Islam is that we believe in Trinitarian monotheism, right? There is one God eternally existing as three distinct co-eternal, co-extensive persons. Okay, very important. So... I, you know, I, I, I think that the doctrine of the Trinity is so wildly important, and uh, the covenant of redemption is no, uh, no exception. So the covenant of redemption really has everything uh, to do with Trinitarian theology. So what is the covenant of redemption? Historically speaking, what theologians are talking about here is that in the covenant of redemption, there is, in, there is a Trinitarian pact, uh, or what you know, uh, some theologians call a covenant to redeem a particular people on the basis of the electing love of the Father, the redeeming atonement of the Son, and the securing or the sealing of the Spirit. 
And so, so in redemption, what we're saying is this, is that each member, Father, Son, and Spirit, each play a distinct role in redemption. They each have their obligations, they each have their responsibilities, they each have agreed to play a particular role in the redemption of a particular people. Ah, which is really amazing. I mean, it's just uh, another maybe <coughs> historical term for this would be the This is uh, the Latin, that's a P, by the way, the salutis pactum, or the pactum salutis. This is the, the uh, pact of salvation. How many of you guys have heard of the order salutis? Mm -hmm. Yes? What is the order salutis, Steve? The order of salvation. The order of salvation, right? Um, how many of you knew that salvation has an order, right? Uh, that's very important to know the order of salvation. You know, I think for anybody who's going to teach any theology class or even Sunday school, right, Chris, we've talked about this, it's good for you to memorize the order of salvation. Because at any time that you're teaching and, you know, sometimes in Sunday schools, the wheels kind of get a little bit wobbly and, <laughs> you know, things can go kind of haywire, you know. It's always good to know, okay, let's bring it back to what we understand about the order of salvation. So the order of salvation, the pact of salvation uh, there's just a whole theology attached to salvation, which when we're talking about salvation or redemption, what are we talking about? What area of salvation are we talking about? What area of theology are we talking about? Soteriology. soteriology. That's right. It comes from the Greek word soter, soteriology. Soter or soteria means salvation. Soteriology means uh, the theology of salvation, which is one of my favorite things in the whole world to teach on. But um, let's go to the Bible here. Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, I'm going to be in Ephesians a little bit. So go to Ephesians chapter 1 just to kind of begin to see this covenant uh, in place. Okay. Or maybe the, um, just some of the components of it. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. Uh, because uh, the covenant of redemption has also been described as the council of redemption. Again, the intra-Trinitarian council. You know, that's when the, um, you've heard of Ni the, the, the council of Nicaea, right? Where bishops got together and they debated Christology and all of that. Well, the, the, the members of the Trinity got together. They didn't debate, but they met in a council to discuss, if you would, to agree to, to purpose, to even decree redemption. You get a little bit of a hint of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after, here it is, the counsel of his will. The counsel of his will, his will comes from a Greek word. Uh, it's boule, so... Uh, no, 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 no. It's, so boule... Something like that, or even pronounce it like that, boule. That is the Greek word that means uh, counsel. It means decision. It means resolution. Uh, the BDAG, which is a lexicon, very good lexicon, uh, describes it as a divine will. Uh, but notice when this counsel takes place, apparently. It is according to predestination. So what does that imply? What does that imply? Prior to time. Predestination speaks of what happens in ages past, in eternity past, right? Um, in times eternal. At that point in time, which is kind of hard, and theologians have written real big books on, how can you talk about eternity in terms of time, right? Uh, but you have to, in order to try to make sense out of the data, you have to use time-bound language to even talk about eternity. But in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit got together to counsel together to, to resolve and to make a decision in order to redeem God's people. 
Um, maybe we'll come back to Ephesians chapter 1 because that's a big one. But go to Ephesians chapter 3. I think Ephesians chapter 3, you're going to get another glimpse right in the middle, guys. Nobody wants the middle seats. They're all yours. Okay? <laughs> There's this big gaping hole in the middle. Help me out. I feel kind of imbalanced. I'm like, I'm back here. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 8. What a marvelous, marvelous passage of Scripture. Boy, I mean, just go home and do a Bible study in this. Whip out the commentaries. Pull out the lexicons. Study this passage to death because this is, um, I mean, this is as good as it gets in terms of the mystery of salvation, the, the decrees of God, the sovereignty of God, all of those things. Who wants to read that for me? Uh, verses 8 to 11. Who wants to read that? Chris, you want to read that? Sure. Yeah. Nice and loud so everybody in the back can hear you. It says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Especially the emphasis here is on verse 11. This was in accordance. Everything that he said he accomplished here. Um, the, the revelation of the mystery with, which was in ages hidden in God who created all things, right? The manifold wisdom of God was hidden and now it's been revealed through the church. I would, I would say that means um, two things. Through the creation of the church and, and through uh, the message that the church proclaims, um, this has been revealed. And this is in accordance with, their, with the eternal purpose. It's the same type of language there. With the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there... The idea, again, of God having an eternal counsel, an eternal plan, an eternal purpose. You know, one of the things I love about the, the covenant of redemption and the idea of God having an eternal counsel is that our world is going somewhere. And we don't live in an aimless universe. It has no telic purpose. It has no, uh, no climax. It has no, you know, this world has an end. It's, it has a purpose, it has a climax. There's a great finale coming to the history of mankind and to the history of redemption. Um, God is going to, uh, you know, to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, he's going to sum up all things in Christ. Um, maybe uh, now we can turn to a different, any questions or comments or anything about that passage of Scripture? Just really emphasizing the words eternal purpose. And what I'm saying is that that is synonymous with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that God has worked out everything according to the counsel of his will. We could just substitute the phrases. He's, worked, he's working out everything according to his eternal purpose or the counsel of his will. Um, very similar ideas, okay? And it's all being carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right. Yes, sir. I just want to apply it. When he says the counsel of his will, yeah. uh, it's referring to the written word, right? Namely, the written word. Or the written Good word. question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's actually a very, very good question. I'm glad you asked that, Mike. So the word there in Ephesians 3, will, okay, uh, can either be referring to, as Mike is talking about there, God's revealed will. Where is God's revealed will? In his word, primarily, right? Or his decretive will. His decretive will. The, the things that God has decreed. What does it mean for God to decree something? It means he has planned it. He has purposed it to happen. Okay, so this is what we're... So what he means here, uh, Mike, is his decretive will. The things that God has decreed from eternity past. So is, is the covenant, which is, covenant law? What's that? His covenant law. Well, no. His purpose, his plan. 
his eternal plan that he has uh, counseled together within himself, Father, Son, Spirit, covenanting together, making a pact together, an agreement, an eternal agreement. And uh, we'll come back to more of this, but let me just, let me just, Jesus gives us a little bit of an inside look. If you turn to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, Jesus kind of gives us a sneak peek into this. I love John chapter 17. Um, uh, I preached the gospel of John many years ago, now it seems. And it took many years to do that. <laughs> but I did preach the whole gospel of John. I don't know, how, how, how long was it, sweetheart? What, three, three years? <laughs> you mean it seemed like seven years, okay. Um, and I just remember wow, just how fascinated I was by John 17. John 17, of course, is the high priestly prayer of Christ. That is where Christ is praying on behalf of his people, interceding for them. And I thought, wow, this is so glorious. We get a, we get kind of a, we get kind of a, um, uh, an inside look into the consciousness of Christ, what he is thinking, things that are going through his mind just prior to the cross. What is on the mind of the Son of God? Just amazing to me, you know, that we are given such an inside look into the consciousness of Christ here. But uh, look at verse 4. Um, well, in verse, just for context, right, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. So he is addressing the Father. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, so he was in a posture of prayer and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What's that talking about? That's talking about the cross. That's talking about uh, Jesus is telling the father to finish the work that he came to do. Glorify him. Uh, uh, he's getting ready to to go through uh, the cross. So he says, God, you know, he's going to say, restore me to that glory. Bring me to that exalted glory that I had with you. And he, that's what he's going to say. And he says that the son may glorify you. So mutual glorification between father and son, even as you have, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, boy, this is all, boy, this is all big here. He may give eternal life. Uh, the reason I say that is because when I opened up with the definition that I did, this is what I said, that the covenant of redemption is an intra-Trinitarian pact, meaning it's between the members of the Trinity, right, to redeem a particular people on the basis of the electing love of the Father. That's what we're looking at right here. When he says... You gave, uh, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. That is a reference to the elect. All whom you have given him. He may give, i.e. them, eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is also, verse 3, is also covenant language. You know, we contemporize this language in our modern-day context to say, see, this is about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's absolutely right. We can't detract from that at all. But when Jesus says that they may know you, the only true God, to know the only true God in the context of the Bible is to be in covenant relationship with God. That's what it means to be in covenant with God. What is the highest, what is the high point of the covenant? Of all the covenants, what is the, really the old covenant and the new covenant? What is the, what is the end game of the covenant? Salvation. Salvation, that's right. Glorification of the church. What's that? Glorification of the church. That's right. And when you read, um, when you read these contexts of the covenant, it always ends with and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jeremiah chapter 31, and in Revelation chapter 22. It is God, the tabernacle of God is finally with man. That's the high point of it all, is God dwelling in the middle of his people. 
right? In the Old Testament, when God gave them the Ark of the Covenant and made them carry it around and all this stuff, it was a symbol to the nations that the holy, the true God, the only God was in the middle of the camp, that he dwelt with them exclusively, that he dwelt with those people. So what Jesus is talking about here is God dwelling among his people, his people knowing the true God. Those are all, that's all covenantal language. You don't believe me? Go look at the commentaries. It's all there. Um, verse four. This is, see, I told you it's so glorious. I just, this, verse four is really the point I wanted to talk about, but I just, I can't, this is all rele relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, but verse four, I glorified you on the earth, uh, and there, uh, I glorified you on the earth. Jesus is literally talking in retrospect already about the cross. He's already talking about the cross as if it is a foregone conclusion. I did it. I've done it. I've come. I'm here. The hour is at hand. And then he says, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. When did the Father... Give to the Son this work to do. When did he give it to him? Huh? Yeah, and there's a clue in the next verse, right? It says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this mutual glorification of father and son has direct connections to the glory that they had prior to the world even being here okay so this is jesus talking about his pre-existent glory pre-incarnate glory um in eternity past with the father that they enjoyed um what was god doing before he created anything I'm talking before he created heaven, before he created the angels, before he created anything. What was God doing? Was he bored? <laughs> right? He doesn't need us, right? That's what Acts chapter 17 says. God does not need anything. Right? We talked about this over and over again here, uh, the aseity of God, which means the self-sufficiency of God means that God is fully content within himself. And so what, um, what, what was God doing prior to creation of anything? Well, he was experiencing mutual, perfect relationship in a Trinitarian <clears throat> sense. Father, Son, Spirit, infinite happiness, infinite joy, infinite pleasure. You know, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, right? And, and uh, we've... We saw that Hebrews chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, says that after he made purification for sins, he sat down, where? The right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, if you do a study of the right hand in Scripture, there are a few things that are at God's right hand. Authority, okay? Uh, explicitly in Scripture, and now I'm trying to remember what I... <laughs> it's not part of my sermon, but I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, there is knowledge at his right hand. That's a passage. You just have to trust me because I don't have the reference. Knowledge is at his right hand. Uh, I, think, I think it's authority and pleasures. Pleasures. The Hebrew word is delight. Delight. The right hand of God speaks of his presence. What is at the presence of God? Pure, infinite pleasure. A state of being that is total bliss beyond comprehension. Um, isn't that glorious? Glorious. Because he means to share that now with us. <laughs> he wants to bring us into that position of pure delight. That's what John goes on to say, that they may see my glory, right? What did Jesus say? I'm going to go, I'm going to take you so that you will be where I am. Well, we know where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God. 
And so Jesus is, ask, is, is planning on taking us with him into that communion. It's just beautiful. Any questions, statements, concerns, cries or shocks of outrage? Anything? You guys are too easy. Okay, let's... Um, is there any other place in Scripture where you all can think that the Trinity counsels together? Genesis. Where? Uh, where it says, let us make man in our image. You know, it's That's right. Plural being used. That's right. Yes, sir. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Let us make, God in, let us make man in our image. Right? Um, there are several other places. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Um, oh, behold, man has become as one of us, right? Therefore, let us... Yeah, what does that say? That's a good one, uh, Steve. I wasn't even thinking about that one. Um, no, I think it is 3. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. He's not talking about the angels, folks. Be careful of those liberal commentaries. He's not talking about the angels. And this is not a plural of majesty. Such language wasn't even utilized when this was written. Uh, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden uh, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. That's right. There is the Trinity counseling together and uh, driving men out of the garden because he fell. So, okay. So what are, what are the, the components of this covenant? Let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 again. I, I don't know how I have not taught the book of Ephesians. I mean, that's such, that's just so not right. But uh, <laughs> it's such a good book, right? It's just incredible. Um, yeah, it's like after you're done preaching a book of the Bible, it's like, which one do you go to next? I mean, it's, what an impossible choice. But uh, Hebrews is a good one, so we're doing all right. Um, so we, we kind of singled out the members of the Trinity here. Okay. And what they have agreed to do, what they have covenant covenanted together to do in the covenant of redemption is that the Father has agreed to be the originator of redemption. He conceives of our election, of our redemption. Look at uh, look at verse 3, okay? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, please, if you have not done this, do a study of these words. In Christ. Okay? What, what doctrine, Chris, comes from these words? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. These two little words, okay, have so much meaning. Please, if you have not, study this phrase, in Christ. What does it mean for us to be in Christ? What does it mean for God to do things in Christ? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him, that's another in Christ statement, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according watch this to the kind intention of his will beautiful what purpose to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved that's another in Christ statement in the beloved right so this is what God's kind will, good will, has done for us. He has chosen us, he has predestined us, and he has adopted us. I know, that's, I know that's hard for some people. I went to church for many years, and my pastors told me, don't talk about predestination, shh, quiet, you know? 
Don't let people know you're talking about that. You know, it's controversial. You're going to scare people. Okay, and we're like, yeah, but what do I do with Ephesians chapter 1? It's right there. I can't hide from it. And uh, it is right there. And uh, if we think about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, and we come to the conclusion, oh, how could God do that? How can God choose like that? How, why doesn't God choose everybody? You know, if we end there, we have missed the boat. Because... Verse 6 tells us that the purpose of all of this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. So if the magnitude of the idea that God has not chosen someone, which we don't know who he has not chosen, but the idea that God has not chosen everyone, let's say, if that overcomes, if that overrules the amazing grace that he would choose you, you have not understood the electing love of God correctly, right? You should be so undone that you have been chosen, <laughs> right? Because let's get, let's get down to the truth here. God is under no obligation to choose anybody. He didn't have to choose anybody. He could have left us all damned in Adam, right? And he would have been absolutely just in doing that. Creation would have applauded if God had consigned us all to condemnation. But the angels, they look in and they marvel at the grace of God. You know? You're going to choose him? Understand who he is? Have you seen what she has done? The type of person that she is? You chose that one? Right? We're trophies of grace. Folks, that's really what it is. So the Father originates the, uh, this whole uh, concept of redemption. So his role in the pact of redemption is that he conceives of it, he ordains it, he decrees it, and the Son executes it. The Son is the executor of redemption. So let's go on. Verse 7. In him, who is in him referred to? How do you know that? What's that? Well, no, because in him refers to someone that has already been introduced. It's hard to determine like the antecedents, right, in this passage, but... Well, not this one. This one is not hard because the closest antecedent to in him is... The Beloved. And the Beloved is Jesus Christ. Okay? So in Him, in the Beloved, we have redemption. How do you know that? How do you know it's not the Father? Through His blood. <laughs> not the Father's blood. You know? How many times have we heard worship leaders, like myself, I'll confess, Chris, I'm not throwing you under the bus, right? <laughs> Saying, Father... You know, they're praying and they're singing because they're trying to remember the chords and they're doing so many things up there. And they'll say things like, Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying on the cross. Huh? <laughs> the Father did not die on the cross. <laughs> Where did my Trinity word go? It's gone. Trinitarian theology. <laughs> very, very important. The Father did not die on the cross. What, 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 what's wrong with that idea? I mean, it's not true, but what, what does that result in? Modalism. Oneness, modalism, Sabellianism. The ancient heresy was known as patripatrianism. Pater is the word for father. Patripatrianism means the suffering of the father. Because by erasing the Trinity and seeing only the father, you put the father on the cross. And so church history said, no, the father did not suffer for us. The Father conceives, originates redemption, but He does not execute it. It is the Son who executes redemption. He is the one who redeems. It is His blood that is shed. Let's keep going. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. So He is, it is through His blood, it is by means of the blood of Jesus that we have 
forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Um, I know we kind of lost our eye on the pronouns there. It gets a little bit confusing. That's where we're... Um, Pastor Chris is talking about here that, you know, depends, like, who is he at this point? I think at some point here, it switches back to the Father after it says in verse 8, and he lavished on us, according, accor sorry, according to the riches of his grace. I think that goes back to God, back to God the Father, in all uh, which he, the Father, lavished on us in all wisdom, he, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he, the Father, purposed in Christ. Which he purposed in him, that's Christ. It's not which he purposed in the Father. See, it's, it's, I understand that it's, it, it gets complex there, but... Um, the point that I'm stressing is the Father elects, the Son redeems, right? The Father chooses, the Son redeems those who are chosen. And then what about the Spirit? Verse 13, in Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, that is, the Son, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Spirit is the applier of redemption. Boy, that's ugly. Sorry. He is the applier of redemption. Okay? So he applies redemption to us. I'm losing something. I'm, my, my leg's going down or something. I'm getting ready to have a disaster. There we go. I hope that did it, unless it's the back leg. In which case, I'll just blame somebody else. But <laughs> Okay, so the Father is the originator. The Son is the executor. The Spirit is the applier of redemption. Any questions? Questions? Comments? Please ask questions. I'd say he's the guarantor as well, right? Guarantor? Ensures that it happens. That's right. Yes, sir. I've run into some uh, people at work that, uh, especially one in particular who's brought up a view of the Trinity that is not biblical, uh, but is saying that the Son is the Spirit and the Son is the Father. Uh, what, how would be, what would be a, I guess, a way of explaining the error in that? That's tough. I mean, obviously it depends how open that person is. I used to work with a oneness Pentecostal pastor, so we would constantly be debating the Trinity. You know what I mean? And um, it's really hard. First of all, pray for that person. There's a spiritual battle going on there first, right? That's the reason they get irrational at some point. That's the reason at some point they just don't want to listen to the arguments anymore. That's the reason why they don't want to hear about church history or, you know what I mean, because they're closed off because there's a spiritual battle there. So pray first, and then, you know, I would use both history and scripture, you know, to show them that. The, the, I think a lot of times it helps people to see that what they're believing has a historical origin, the origin of ideas, right? It's very good to point out to people that what you're believing right now, um, I know where it came from. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it just kind of, I think a lot of Jehovah Witnesses, for example, it kind of surprises them. We're like, oh, Arius, Arius believed this in the, in the fourth century. I mean, this is nothing new, right? And so that helps. And then, of course, ultimately and most importantly, take them to Scripture Take them to a passage like this, you know. This passage would make absolutely no sense if there's only one person. Why is he distinguishing between what the Father did and what the Son did, what the Holy Spirit did, if it's still the same person? Mm -hmm. You know, how can Jesus say in John 10, I am not alone. The Father is with me. Right? I am not alone. I am with myself. I mean, it just, you know, don't get me, you, don't get me started on 
Apologetics of the Trinity. But I mean, I did say ask a question. So <laughs> The baptism is another problem, right? Uh, how do you explain that? You know, Jesus is being baptized. Who's speaking out of heaven? Who's descending uh, in the form of a dove? And who's on the earth? I've heard modalism say that the, the, the members are bouncing back and forth. You know, I'm just... What is it, the Matrix? I mean, you know? Yeah, I was just seeing this passage, and it's so clear, the, the distinctions of the persons of the Trinity. Um, and, yeah, there, there's no other way to view it or be consistent with the passage that I see. So it uh, definitely helps uh, me formulate that kind of a... What's weird is to, is to defend the Trinity from that angle. Usually we're defending the Trinity like... The Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. They're all three. Most people, like Jehovah's Witness will say, well, they're all distinct, for sure. But to deal with a oneness, Pentecostal person, you're, you're trying to argue from the other angle. You're like, no, they're all distinct. <laughs> That's the other way around. It's just a very strange argument that I yeah. personally haven't had to deal with yet with the person, but yeah. I know that those people exist. Yes. Good point, Chris. Um, good point. And... Um, <clears throat> So, I, you know, I want to point out as well that um, from this passage in Ephesians here, what we're seeing is that Father, Son, and Spirit, they are, they are in agreement. How do I do this? We know what we're studying. They are in agreement. <clears throat> okay. This is very important, right? Because um, you know, when when people challenge um, the doctrine, let's say, of election, or if they challenge the doctrine of the the limited atonement of Christ, um, you know, we often want to respond with sort of um, you know one to one correspondence, you know, an argument. We want to say, well, you show me a verse where it says, you know, um, all or the whole world, and I'll show you a verse where it says, my sheep, you know, died for my people, you know, those types of things. But really, the whole debate, if you would, over Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, these types of things, is very Trinitarian, okay? And that's what Ephesians chapter 1 helped me to see, is that from this passage, we see that the members of the Trinity are agreed upon the objects of redemption. They are agreed as to the means of redemption, and they are agreed as to the manner in which redemption takes place. They agree as to who will be redeemed. They, will, they agree as to uh, who will redeem them, Christ, and uh, how they will be redeemed by the sealing and the securing of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is in full agreement on the whole entire concept of redemption. Any questions on that? Sorry, I saw that hand, but I was ignoring you. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. I, was I was trying to get my thought out. Sorry. Um, no, and that's why if we can, we can apply to marriage, which is all just a picture of Christ and the church. Unity is so important in our marriages because it reflects the unity of, of the God that we believe in. Yeah. And so when we, are, when we don't have unity or when we are divided or when we're not in agreement or when we're not we're, you know, we're not reflecting our maker right. Right. Yes. Oh, and then I was going to share that verse. Uh, As you have reminded me many times, my dear. Yeah, oh, no, and then I was going to share that, uh, that verse. Chris, am I dying over here? Or what's... Uh, back, the back pole for me. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know that verse I've written, he will bow, and every tongue will confess. Yeah, Philippians 2. Jesus Christ is yep. Lord right. to the glory of God the Father. That's right. And that's another big verse that you can use in the face of the modalists or the... Amen. Uh, each member of the Trinity has certain, uh, has certain uh, responsibilities in the pact of salvation. What are some of the responsibilities that the Father has? Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, so we looked at election. We looked at some of those things, right? But yes, that that's really an important one. Is that the father has commissioned, or he has sent, right, the son. So he commissions the son. The reason why that's so important is because you find that in all the gospels. Jesus is constantly talking about being sent, 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 right? Uh, they don't, you know, the Pharisees failed to believe that he was sent by the Father. Okay, so it is the Father who sends the Son, right? John 3, uh, look at John 3, please. He sent the Son, and, and the sending of the Son is contrived of as a rescue mission. Why did the Father send the Son? He sent him to rescue sinners. <clears throat> for, for the Son did not send, for, excuse me, for oh, all that work, all that work for me to say the Son sent, right? Sorry. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so he sent him on this rescue mission to rescue all of his people. Not to keep getting apologetical, but talking about modalism, the fact that there is a son there that the father can send, you know, just shows the plurality of the guy had already. That's right. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah amen. Amen. Um, what a remarkable thing in Isaiah chapter six, where the Trinity once again another another passage talking about the Trinity having a council together, how amazing is that they say, well, who will go for us and who will we send? What a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus was sent, right? The Trinity is talking and ultimately at one point they said, you know, the Father is, is saying, you know, who, who am I going to send? Well, of course I'm going to send the Son if the Son agrees to come. <laughs> right? So the Son's responsibility is to do the will of the Father. To accomplish, as he says in John 17, to accomplish the work that he was set to do. So he has to live a life of perfect, active obedience. That's a responsibility of the son. So the father is sent, right? And the son, his responsibility, we could say, is to obey, to submit to the will of the father. And how many passages, sorry, yes, that says obey. Sorry, uh, but how many passages can you think of in your mind where the son is talking about his obedience to the father? I always do, he says in John 8, the things that are pleasing to him. Right? What does he tell John the Baptist? Let it be so in order to what? Fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus had an obligation to submit to and to obey the will of the father. Perfectly. That is known as the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is the things that Jesus suffered, especially on the cross. Those are things that he took upon himself passively, but actively he obeyed the will of God perfectly in order to accomplish redemption. If we don't have a perfectly obedient son, then we don't have a perfectly spotless lamb, mm -hmm. right, to redeem us, right? Mm -hmm. What else? So the son, ultimately, what is the high point of his obedience? Death on the cross. He became obedient, Philippians chapter 2, even, what is, how does it say? Humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. The cross is the climax of all of this. And then finally, finally, then the spirit. What does the spirit agree to do? The spirit has agreed to do several things. He is, as we said, the spirit has, <clears throat> he has agreed to apply redemption, right? To apply redemption, to secure, to secure the redeemed. He is also, he is also agreed the Spirit has also agreed to advance the mission of Christ. 
Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, the Spirit testifies with our spirit, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that we are the children of God. So, yes, so he, so, so we could say, bringing up that point, he said the Spirit agrees to apply redemption to us, to secure the redeemed, to advance the cause of Christ, and to sanctify, to sanctify God's people. Okay? Is that right? No, that's right. I had it right. Right, to sanctify God's people. So he agrees to apply redemption, secure those who are redeemed, to advance the mission of Christ. Where does he advance the mission of Christ? The church. The church. Where do we see him doing that? What book? Acts. Right? We see the Spirit empowering the church to further the gospel. Right? Yes. Um, what about the, the will of the Holy Spirit? The will of the Holy Spirit. And like in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the spiritual gifts. Yes. They are apportioned as he wills. That's right. So. That's right. Does he have a will that's kind of his own? Yes. He does have a will of his own. Yes. Just like the, like the Father, the Son, they both, they all have individual wills. Right, but they all work perfectly together. I mean, you you have three centers of consciousness, three persons, holistic persons, right? So, but the the, the will of the Spirit is always to do the will of the Father, always in conjunction with the will of the Son, right? Never so. So the plan of redemption is very comforting for a lot of a lot of practical ways. It means that we have a God that is perfectly unified within Himself, right? Total unity. A total solidarity in our God. Um, we have a salvation that is also sure, secure, unshakable. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have agreed to do this, then our redemption is totally secure. We have an unshakable hope, right? Because God cannot deny himself. So I'm completely out of time. So, any last questions? Sure? I know there's questions. Hannah? No questions? You have a list for me back there? We have a running joke here. Hannah supposedly has all these questions but won't ask. Maybe she'll get the courage. I know, I know. Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you. Um, okay, let's, let's pray and, and let's go to worship. Father, Lord... Who can fully understand and who can fully comprehend all of the glorious things that you have purposed? Help us, Lord, to be obedient. Help us to understand the will of the Lord. Help us to marvel at the mysteries that are revealed for us in Scripture. Thank you for the fact that we do have a Father who has uh, chosen us, a Son who has redeemed us, and a Spirit that is going to secure us to the end. We thank you, Lord. Be glorified in our church. We pray the Trinitarian God would be glorified in our church and that we as individual people, your children, that we would learn what it is to commune with the triune God. In Jesus' name, amen.